like to welcome everybody and uh, uh, here in a most unusual way for Celtic studies at St. Michael's, but uh, certainly during our pandemic, uh, this is one of the few ways in which we can reach, reach out to the community and kind of continue a tradition that we've had in Celtic studies at St. Michael's and in bringing in the best and the brightest to talk uh, to us uh, about things Celtic and this to this evening, uh, things Irish. And uh, uh, I'm delighted that we've had a long standing relationship at St. Michael's College and in Celtic studies with uh, the Irish Embassy in Ottawa. And it's, uh, uh, it's, it's not a secret to many of you that uh, within this context, we've always had the Irish ambassador uh, come to the college for a variety of reasons, but very specially uh, to address uh, the, the members of the college, uh, the Irish community writ large, and, uh, and to raise, I think, interesting questions and, and, and issues. I, mean, I remember when I was first hired at St. Michael's uh, a long, long time ago, given the gray of my beard, um, I remember Ambassador Hogan at the time, uh, meeting him for the first time, eating with the students in the Canada room. Uh, and that was the way in which, you know, uh, Ireland engaged Canada in, in, in quite, a, I thought, a, a unique way. So um, we're delighted tonight to have Eamon McKee here with us uh, in Celtic Studies uh, for the community. And, uh, and just to say, as a kind of a shameless plug for us, uh, to, to stay tuned for some future events that we will be presenting online, uh, because I, I'm rather proud as punch uh, this evening uh, to, um, uh, to announce to you that uh, many of you had uh, tuned into the Beacon <coughs> Lecture with President, uh, former President Mary McAleese uh, just a few months ago. Well, St. Michael's has been awarded uh, the first Canadian Beacon Fellowship, and that's going to uh, uh, be a lecture and a series of four workshops that begins uh, on March 30th, featuring Dr. Dara Gannon of Queen's University Belfast, originally uh, a Monaghan lad, who will be talking to our community uh, about uh, the, the, the decade of centennials, the 1912 to 1922, and what its significance is to those of us in the Irish diaspora. So stay tuned for that, for details uh, on, the, on the 30th of March and then four workshops to go. So um, there's a shameless plug. And for those of you who don't recognize me in a tie, my name is Mark McGowan. I am the interim principal and vice president of the University of St. Michael's College. And I have the great pleasure of having been seconded for many years to the Celtic Studies Program to teach history. Um, but really, it's my pleasure tonight uh, to introduce to you, and I would say to the St. Michael's community for the first time, um, Dr. Uh, Eamon McKee, who is now currently uh, the Irish ambassador to Canada. And you can see he's uh, in his Ottawa residence uh, in, in lockdown, uh, so, to, so to speak. Um, uh, Eamon comes to us uh, as a former ambassador of Ireland to Israel, and prior to that, uh, as uh, Irish ambassador to South Korea. Um, just to give you some background, uh, he uh, studied uh, at, uh, uh, at UCC in Dublin, as some of you uh, in the audience tonight have, uh, but he received his PhD uh, from the National University of Ireland uh, in 1987, uh, studying Irish economic policy uh, from 1939 to 1952. And you might thinking, well, tonight's lecture on Gaelic Ireland seems to be a little out of the reach of this historian. But knowing historians as I do, there's always a great stretch uh, involved. And, uh, uh, and uh, as my own thesis supervisor once said, we don't study one part of history, we study history. 
and so uh, uh, Eamon is going to uh, uh, give us a, a journey tonight. But just before that, just to give you a, a sense, he joined the Foreign Service in 1986. Uh, and uh, was in Washington from 1990 to 96. And, and many of you will know that this was an exciting time uh, in, in Irish history as, uh, as the, the peace accords were being hammered out uh, during the Clinton administration. And uh, I'm delighted to say that uh, Eamon was part of that and, and certainly uh, was uh, in that group uh, in the lead up through the negotiations to the Good Friday uh, uh, Agreement in 1998. And I, I think after talking to Damon for a while, I realized that, I mean, he could give a whole lecture just on that particular aspect of his career. Uh, that would be fascinating. Um, so this evening, uh, he is going to be uh, addressing us on ancient Ireland and all that remains of it. And uh, so it is my, normally we would have applause at this time, Eamon, but uh, yeah. uh, to, to welcome uh, Ambassador Eamon McKee uh, to, uh, to St. Michael's College in, in our virtual uh, session uh, this evening. Thanks, Mark. Listen, great pleasure to be here and to talk to you. And hello to St. Michael's and, and, and your great program. Yeah, I mean, listen, I could talk about Northern Ireland, but I've been having interviews with, with students uh, who are interviewing me and I'm, I feel like an archive. Uh, and I'm certainly feeling my age because it's now kind of history and they're, they're pulling me up and saying, can we interview about your role in the peace process? So uh, I have to remind myself how long ago it was, you know. But uh, yeah, just, uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk about something that I'm really interested in at the moment, which is ancient Ireland. Uh, this is, I guess, my initial question to you is... Uh, with your background in what I would consider contemporary or, or modern economic history in Ireland, what got you interested uh, in, in this particular aspect of, uh, of Irish history? Uh, yeah, for some reason, I don't know why, I got very interested in the Norman invasion and particularly Dermot McMurrah's role. So you have Dermot McMurrah, who's this king of Wexford essentially, invites the Normans in and he's, he's, he's He's regarded throughout history as the great criminal, as it were, you know, uh, the, the source of all evil. Because when the Normans come in in 1170, um, that forges the link with the crown. And 800 years of misery, the most oppressed people ever. But what fascinated me then was, well, what kind of society did the Normans actually encounter? What was Gaelic society actually like? Um, because it's very different from ours. They weren't in, interested in cities. Um, there was a lot of warrior kings, uh, they're speaking Irish, um, and they're, they're relatively easily overwhelmed by the Normans. So you kind of wonder, what was the milieu that these Normans, who are the inheritors of the, Rome, of the Roman culture in many ways, what was Gaelic society like? And that, that kind of led me on a search then to find out, like, what did Ireland physically look like? What did the Irish look like? What did they eat? I mean, what kind of society are we talking about here? How different is it from our 20th century notions of Irishness? So that kind of led me on the trail to find out, well, what is the material that is there? And of course, there's an awful, as you know, there's an awful lot of material there about what this society looked like. In fact, the, there is more material about Gaelic Ireland than of any other European society, west and north of the Alps. We've just got a lot of material there. The question is, how do you build it up into an accurate picture? And that's quite a contentious area. So looking at uh, uh, Gaelic Ireland, could you give us kind of a, a sense of, of what it looks like then? Is it, 
Yeah, well, I, sh I should probably say first the reason why it's a contentious area. The study of ancient Ireland really starts in the 19th century. And you've got these great academics like Eugene O'Curry and John O'Donovan who are examining the manuscripts and describing what this society looked like. But they're part of a much wider European movement or rom the Romantic movement. And so you've got scholars, linguists, folklorists, people investigating the mythology of Europe in Britain, France, and Germany. So they're part of a romantic movement, which is a reaction to the age of reason. Um, and they're interested in what are the origins of their own nations. Um, and they're all interconnected. John O'Donovan, for, John O'Donovan, for example, is invited onto the Prussian Academic Council by Jacob Grimm because the Grimm brothers were investigating German folklore. You know, so this whole 19th century uh, almost obsession with Ra uh, national origins. What, what were the nature of these ancient societies? So in Ireland, of course, they investigate Gaelic Ireland, and that makes a major contribution to Irish nationalism. But they investigate Norse, which develops German nationalism and Anglo-Saxon and so on. So these antiquarian uh, investigators, archaeologists, linguists, folklorists, they're all part of a European movement. And so, so are the Irish. Um, but what we, when we piece it all together, um, the, the Irish society you have is, it's a very uh, hierarchical society. You've got uh, the kings at the top, you have nobles, and to be a noble, you had to own land. Land ownership wasn't, wasn't very common uh, amongst the population, but you could not be a noble unless you owned land. Beneath them, you had free men, um, and you would have property, not land, but property, basically cattle. These were the Boara, the kind of what they call the cow chiefs. And then below them, you had a tenant class, uh, Fudirs, Ser Fudir, which is a free tenant, and Dera Fudir, which is a slave tenant, a bonded tenant. Then, of course, you had craftsmen and smiths and carpenters and farmers and beekeepers and everything else. Um, what's really fascinating about Gaelic society is that it's been there for an awful long time. They have this vast corpus of literature and laws and genealogy and history. And it's never written down until the monks arrive. So for centuries, they have memorized all of this. I mean, it's quite a fascinating, when you think about this, all of the laws and literature are memorized in specialized schools. You know, Nephili, the poets, the Brehams are the lawyers, you have court uh, historians and storytellers and genealogists. They literally are memorizing all of their culture in kind of mind palaces. I mean, to be a Brehan lawyer, you had to go off and memorize the law for seven years. You know, it's only when the monks arrive in the fifth century, you write this down. And again, so you have this sense of a society uh, that is living very lightly in the land. I mean, if you were to look at Ireland, if you looked at Ireland back in the Gaelic, the time of ancient Gaelic Ireland, it's quite physically different. There's, there's vast uh, primordial forests, which are virtually impenetrable. You then have a lot of bog because Ireland is actually much wetter. Uh, the table, the, the, the water tables are much higher. Uh, and then you've got open pastures. Um, because of the archaeology, it is well connected with, with roads connecting, uh, you know, the, the north, south, east and west. Um, but there's not much stone building going on, which is why very little survives architecturally. Um, and of course, it's a, it's a pastoral society. Cattle are at the heart of what they do. So if you're a Norman coming along to Ireland, it looks uninhabited. 
it looks like there's no society there or not much, and it do, there doesn't look like there's much civilization there compared to a Norman society of, 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 of cities and manuscripts and so on and so forth. Um, and of course, it's a warrior society, you know. So you've got on the one hand, you've got this very tumultuous uh, warrior society where kings are competing with each other. And then you've got this very socially conservative society because it hasn't changed all that much, you know. Um, and uh, but clearly a very resilient society, too. One of the things that I'm curious about, and because I'm not a speaker myself, I'm six generations Irish Canadian, and uh, but my daughters, through Celtic studies, actually are more Irish speakers than their father is. Uh, um, where did the Irish language come from? Yeah, I mean, this is again, it's Irish is really unusual because uh, we we're not quite sure where it comes from. It, it's clearly a Celtic language. When it comes into Ireland, we don't know. We've got evidence. The only firm evidence of Irish coming into Ireland is, is in uh, essentially the first century AD. Now, there's speculation it could have come in 4000 BC, it could have come in 1000 BC, um, but the firm evidence is 100 AD. What's really unusual is that it's adopted by the whole population more or less at the same time. There aren't regional dialects. It's incredibly cohesive, and that's, that's a real mystery, you know? But I think it might be worthwhile just for a moment to just back up a little bit to say, to look at, you know, what was the occupation of Ireland very briefly? Because when you read these history books, you often get with the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, oh, you know, when, when, is, when, are, when are things happening? But in very brief terms, the first humans arrive in Ireland in 8,000 uh, BC. So, and here we have the kind of list here, which I think is, is, is good. There's no real evidence of a Paleolithic presence in Ireland. You have a Mesolithic, Middle, middle, middle uh, Stone Age. So about 8,000 BC, the, 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 the uh, Ice Age has retreated. Um, there's a small group of people around the Basque region that has survived the Ice Age, and they move north into Britain and Ireland. They're hunter-gatherers. So from about 8,000 BC, we have uh, probably about 3,000 people living in Ireland as hunter-gatherers. They're more or less certainly not speaking Irish. They're speaking something that never didn't survive. And then in 4,000 BC, we have the great revolution in, in all of human society. We have the Neolithic. Farming arrives in Ireland in 4,000 BC um, and probably came from Britain. Maybe we've, we've got some influences from Brittany and, and Southern Gaul, Southern France. The farmers basically colonize Ireland within 200 years. So it's a, it's a very rapid adoption of agriculture. And of course, agriculture is a revolution because it gives you food surpluses and allows non-working leaders and druids and uh, fighters, warriors to, to live off that food surplus. So um, uh, two and a half thousand BC, the Bronze Age begins. This again is a revolution because it's uh, metallurgy. You're bringing in bronze, horse also arrives too. Um, and um, the late Bronze Age, at about 1000 BC, we're looking at some kind of a major change. And I, our, our, our great scholars believe that you've got a warrior elite caste that comes in because obviously with metallurgy and horses, you've got all the ingredients for a warrior culture. Um, hill forts develop and the major ritual sites around Ireland, which were pre-existing, are also reused. So this is a complex society of warrior elites, uh, major rituals being involved, uh, hill forts. Um, and you can see how 
it's 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 qualitatively different from a kind of a farming society. Iron Age come the iron is introduced in 600 BC. Now up until uh, more recent times, there was always this view that the Iron Age um, is 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 an invasion by iron you know, uh, warriors with iron swords. They're they're stronger than bronze swords, and that this was a major change. In fact, bronze and iron go side by side for for many many hundreds of years. Um, there's not a great break there. What's really significant is Laten, which is the Celtic design motifs from center, from Europe around Switzerland and, and Central Europe, they come to Ireland about 200 BC. So I think the, the, what we're looking at here is probably a uh, Celtic warrior elite society establishing itself in Ireland. Now, most people, of course, most people are, your, your program is called the Celtic Studies Program because most people would regard themselves as Celts. But actually, there's no evidence of a major change in population around this time. What you're, what you're looking at is probably a small warrior elite of, of Celts coming into Ireland and establishing themselves at the top of society, speaking Irish, and the rest of the population adopt that language pretty quickly. Um, and this is, in the, this is in the second century BC. Um, and that's why you have that uniformity of the Irish language uh, at this time. Now, a sudden change in language by society is not, is not unprecedented. I mean, we have the same thing with, with famine Ireland uh, when Irish is dropped and English is, is adopted. So we have a pretty cohesive society by the second century BC. It's Celtic, it's warrior elite. Um, it's, uh, um, it's, it's based on the Breton laws. Um, and it's from this period that we probably date the, the, the great mythological stories like the Thoin the cattle raid of Cooley and so on. Um, and this is a society that loves music, uh, it loves storytelling, um, and critically, the, the, one of the major, and this is why I put it down here, Caesar invades Britain in 55, 54 BC, and the Romans never came to Ireland. And I think we have to look at that as a major uh, divergence between Ireland and Britain, because the Romans, and this is quite surprising when you think about it, the Romans are there from 50, 55 BC to about 410. Rome, Rome is in Britain for almost 500 years, leaving a major impact. And the, the, the most significant impact of the Romans in Britain is that they create a centralized society. They establish cities like London, Chester, uh, Bristol. Um, they put in roads, markets, bureaucracy, uh, the baths, uh, the fortifications. Um, and they centralize society. Because the Romans never come to Ireland, Irish Gaelic society remains effectively uh, decentralized. Um, and they're immune from, from that influence of, of, of the Romans. And so, yeah, sometimes I, I was thinking the other day, you know, is that where, is that why Britain ended up with an empire and we ended up with a diaspora? <laughs> was that where we kind of parted ways? Anyway, to fast forward, we have evidence of the Irish language. Rome pulls out of Britain. St. Patrick comes in 432. This is the introduction of Christianity, critically the introduction of, of, of writing. So the monks, the Irish monks then write down all of this corpus of, of Gaelic Brechen laws and, and the mythological stories, the genealogies and histories and so on. Um, Vikings attack uh, Ireland. But what the Vikings bring for the first time ever are cities. 
you know, all of our, you know, Dublin, Wexford, Waterford, Limerick, Cork are Viking. The Irish have no interest in cities. Gaelic society is a fundamentally rural society. They were happy to leave the, the Vikings in the cities. So when, for example, at the Battle of Clontarf in 1014, Brian Boru defeats the Danes, uh, they don't take over Dublin. Uh, they, they leave those again to the Vikings at the Battle of Clontarf. And then, of course, 1169, the Normans come. And finally, just on this, the Normans are really interesting because when the Normans are taking Dublin from the Vikings, the Normans themselves were originally Vikings who settled in France and become Romanized. So in a way, you have this very strange, this battle between the Vikings of Dublin in 1170 and the Normans is actually a battle between two iterations of, of Vikings. You know, Vikings in Ireland that are in many ways are old fashioned and then these new version of Vikings, the Normans, you know. So that's a very quick run through of the different phases because it can get a bit confusing as to what's significant and what isn't, you know. So Eamon, one of the things that, that, that strikes me in, in, in this list and, and given the topic tonight is, you know, what survives from Gaelic Ireland. I'm gonna go back to language again. Yeah. And I, I'm gonna say, and probably uh, a loaded question and I hope people don't hate me for it, but uh, uh, will Irish be spoken uh, in, in another hundred years? Yes. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I, I think absolutely. I mean, the thing about the Irish language is, you know, the language is the soul of a nation. And we've been, we've had our ups and downs. And of course the Irish, you know, Irish was, Irish was spoken widely up until the Great Famine. It's the famine that, that causes the, 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 the real retreat of famine. I mean, when I've looked at, for example, with my, my great grandparents, um, they speak Irish and English, but after the famine, their children just speak English. But Irish has been really important. It, it went through one revival in the 19th century. It became a really important part of our nationalism. Uh, it's a really important research tool as well into this vast corpus and material. It's still being spoken in Ireland today. Um, it's been learned by people, including here in Canada. Um, and, you know, there's Irish speaking schools. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's got a good future. It's never going to be, it's never going to become you know, the most common language spoken in Ireland, but it will always be spoken, it will always be researched. Uh, and yes, I think it is, will always be alive. And certainly it will always be alive in Ireland, that's for sure, absolutely. I appreciate that answer. And it was a loaded question because yeah. it, it very self-serving for our program in Celtic studies, which thrives on the teaching of the Irish language and our relationship with ICUF. So um, yeah. that's re refreshing to hear. But um, also I, sh I should say as well, you and I'm a, a good friend of mine is a kind of a native Irish speaker. He assures me that, when we when they speak when people speak in Irish to each other, they're much more direct. In English, we still have a tendency to. It's not. It's still an adopted language in many ways. So there's a fascinating interplay between Irish and English. You know, and of course we all learn it in school. Not that we remember an awful lot of it, but there we go. You know. Very good. The other thing that I wanted to, to draw out of your 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 timeline there was the the Brehon laws. I mean. Um, uh, there's no central government, as as have you stated in in, in Gaelic Ireland, and yet uh, uh, somehow these these laws maintain without kind of a, a central authority. Could you give us some insight into that? Yeah, I mean the Brehan laws are fascinating. They've been they were written down in the Shenahus Moore and other big law books, so we know they're they're we know what they are. They're they're what's really fascinating about them is that they describe society in minute detail. Because there's no nation state, law 
in Gaelic Ireland is about damage to an individual and compensation. So Brown law is all about tort. It's all about restoring to society the harmony that has been damaged by an injury, an assault or whatever. Um, and the Brown law is very specific about how you compensate a multitude of, of offenses against the person or the community. Uh, and of course, the compensation depends on your rank in society, but they're incredibly detailed. So for example, if you injure somebody under the Breton law, you have to bring that injured person to your own homestead. You have to feed them and they're specific on the food you must give them. They even specify that if the dog is barking and disturbing your, their sleep, you must take the dog away. I mean, the Breton law is incredibly detailed about what you must do to restore order. Um, and, you know, and it's very similar to the law of indigenous Canadians, for example. You know, in the absence of a nation state, laws are about social harmony, about, about restoring balance. And the Breton laws are incredibly detailed about this. In a nation state, breaking of the law is, is effectively an offense against the state. So if you murder somebody in a nation state, the, the state basically arrests you and charges you and so on and, and, and holds you in prison. Where there's no nation state, it's compensation, you know. Um, but it raises this fundamental question: How do you enforce this? Now, in Gaelic society, it's very clear that people are they venerate Brahmin law, and most of them obey it, and they do it for so you know because not to obey it would be incur social shame and eventually social social isolation, um, and so. Uh, uh, it, it turns out that it has a high degree of compliance because in a way, Breton law is their society. You know, it's almost sacred. You know, Heaney, Seamus Heaney once said, the word in Gaelic society, the power of voodoo, you know. And I think if you go back to, to the origins of Breton law, um, the kind of informed speculation is that it began with Nephili, the poets, who would remember all the old stories. And then if somebody has done something, They'll go back to uh, when that was previously done and how it was solved. So they're using precedent and stories to get a sense of justice. And eventually this becomes so specialized, the Philly split into Brehons and poets, you know. But by the time the monks arrive, there's a vast corpus of this law. So it is a society regulating itself. I mean, one of the other ways of what they call distrain, how do you get somebody to do something to obey the law? Uh, one of the ways that they did it was fasting. So if you felt you were the injured party, you would go to the gate of the person who did the injury to you and you would fast. And under Breton law, uh, the object of your complaint would have to fast as well. And this is where it's quite interesting because this becomes adopted as part of the Irish national struggle. You know, we have Terence McSweeney, the mayor of Cork, starves himself to death uh, during the War of Independence, protesting against his uh, arrest and conviction by a military court. And of course, in the hunger strikes in the 1980s, we have Bobby Sands and nine other men, again, almost deliberately echoing this Breton law practice of, of using uh, fasting uh, as a protest, as a way of getting what you want. So in a way, you could make the argument that, you know, if you're talking about ancient Ireland and all that remains of it, the hunger strike as a political weapon uh, is clearly echoed from, from the Breton laws. Um, and so, yeah, so, and I think even in Ireland today, there, there, there is always that sense in, in, in of, 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 of fairness and restoration of justice, you know? Um, but yeah, the Breton laws are, are, are fascinating. And of course, people like scholars like P.W. Joyce and Eugene O'Curry built up their picture of what ancient Gaelic society was like 
through a close examination of the Breton laws. Thanks for that. Just going back to that timeline again uh, that you that you offered, um, without centralized power in Ireland, and I suppose the question really comes from you know a presentist stance. I mean, you know, how 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 do you organize a country with or or you know an island like Ireland without a centralized authority? Yeah, I mean, you see, this is where you know we have our own modern notions which we don't even think about. For us, it's automatic to think about government and taxes and county councils and all of that. Um, in Gaelic society, they're not organized like that. We do know that, obviously, they're organized around what were probably five provinces with Mead in the middle. Um, but real, real power is in the provinces. It's in the provincial kings. So the provincial king sits on top of a hierarchy of other kings. You know, the, the Tua is the, the tribal territory and people. It's kind of a combined term. Every Tua would have a king, more or less, and those kings would swear loyalty to kings above them in, in groups of Tuas, and then eventually to the provincial kings. Um, so it is a, a hierarchical system in that sense. You swear loyalty, and loyalty means that you, you obviously are paying your king, you know, cattle and honey and beer and whatever else, but you're also uh, obliged for military service as well. Um, so in a way, that makes Ireland difficult to conquer because there's no center, you know, it becomes very resilient. And so when the Normans come in, they can take chunks of Ireland, but Gaelic society is flexible because it doesn't have that center. You know, the Normans, when they come in at 1066, they take over London and they control, they could get rapidly get control of the whole country. Again, that's that kind of Norman influence. So, uh, yeah, it's a very loose sense of government, but it is all about human relationships. Like, for example, the last High King of Ireland, Rory O'Connor, when he becomes High King, uh, he gives 4,000 head of cattle to the Danes of Dublin as a kind of, because it's a, it's a reciprocal relationship to bind them in loyalty to him, you know? Um, so yes, it, 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 it's a very loose uh, form of society, but you would, you know, if you betrayed your King, God help you, you know, he would come after you um, and so on, yeah. I mean, the other, just the other, on that other point, kingship is very chaotic because primogenitor is not the rule at all. To become a king, you can be chosen from within uh, a royal family, uh, the Derb Finna and the, and, and the Taunistry, as they called them. This meant that, therefore, there was competition for kingship when one king passed away amongst his sons or nephews, usually uh, within that circle, claim it claim from a, a grandfather. But it also meant that it got quite nasty because, you know, brothers against brothers. And one of the means uh, of ensuring that your brother couldn't be king was to blind him. Um, so you didn't have the opprobrium of murder, but you, a king could not, you couldn't be a king if you were maimed or blinded. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty succession in Gaelic Ireland is a pretty it's a pretty savage business you know well let, let's kind of shift gears then from the pretty savage business to what well, what some could consider a savage business too is the economy which is yeah uh, just to get a sense of the the economy uh, of Gaelic Ireland uh, and perhaps uh, the importance of land because I know land is one of those you know resonant themes uh, throughout Irish history can you give us some insight into that yeah, I think I had a quote there from, from Rousseau, which is, is a fascinating quote, because what he says is, you know, uh, the first person 
who having enclosed a plot of land took it into his head to say this is mine and found people simple enough to believe him was the true founder of civil society. What crimes, wars, murders, miseries and horrors would the human race have been spared had someone pulled up the stakes or filled in the ditch and cried out to his fellow men, do not listen to this imposter. You are lost if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong to all and the earth to no one. And I, I love that quote because our notion of land ownership is actually pretty bizarre. You know, it's basically saying we own this land. Now, we can't put it in our pocket or bank account, but we're saying we actually own a piece of the earth, which is a really odd concept when you actually think about it. And in Gaelic Ireland, and indeed in Indigenous Canada, they had a completely different view of the land. The land was within the Tua, within their area, their tribal land, and it is what sustained them. And um, so their personal ownership, as I said, was pretty limited to the noble class. You could grant some mensal land, land to support the king, and eventually monasteries get land. But the Irish view of land is that it belongs to the community of the Tua. And when the father dies, it's divided equally between the sons, what became known as Gabalkind. But you cannot alienate land from the tribe. Um, and when, when the Normans come in, of course, they're coming in with a view of land that is much closer to ours. Now, they win land by, by what they call sword land, and ultimately they cede that territory to the king who grants it back to them. But basically it is about ownership of the land. So from the time of the Normans onwards, uh, up until the Tudor conquest in the, in the 16th century, you have two systems of land ownership. You have the Gaelic society, Brehan, way of owning land, and you've got the Norman way of owning land. You know, uh, And again, this is, this is very typical in, in terms of empires. Empires need to know who owns the land. They need to map it in the first instance. And then they need to declare, we own this. This person owns this. You know, and when you own land, it's essentially a legal right to exclude everybody else. You know, so there's, there's a very different view uh, of land ownership. Um, and when the Elizabethans come in and they, they want to complete the, the, the conquest, uh, they say to the Gaelic chiefs, uh, well, you surrender your land to the king and we'll regrant it back to you. This was known as surrender and regrant, which is how you make the transition from the Gaelic sense of land to essentially an English sense of land. And of course, the, the Gaelic chieftain will do this, secure his title to it, but it's fundamentally alien to, to the Gaelic notion of how you hold land. But it is, that's part of the, the process of conquest, you know? So again, just looking at this, uh, it, it's quite interesting. But I think if you were to say, if you were to say, you know, ancient Ireland, all the remains of it, in terms of land, that question of land ownership is absolutely critical throughout Irish history because of imperial exploitation and conquest, you know, and as JC Beckett, the great Irish historian said, the two big themes of Irish history are religion and land. That's what it's all about. And in fact, we only really solved the land question at the beginning of the 19th century with the Wyndham Land Acts, when eventually the Catholics get the land back, you know, so land is one of the great uh, narrative themes that goes from ancient Ireland right through all the conquests up until, up until the modern era. And of course, after Ireland's independent, they set up the Land Commission. Well, the Land Commission is there before independence, but it's really, it, it, it gathers a lot of pace after that, where land is redistributed to the agriculture, to, to, the, rural, to the rural Irish, as it were. You know? But land is absolutely critical. And, and that, that clarity on the 
definition of how you hold land, I think is really important. And it applies, like I say, you could see those themes being echoed in, in Canada as well, you know. That's very interesting. So I'd just like to shift it slightly and ask you about what goes on the land. And that is cattle, because I mean, our students read the time uh, in, in, in several other uh, courses. I know Anne Dooley's on the call and she has taught the toy and she's written on the toy and, and, and cattle and wealth are, are associated with one another in the toy, you know, over the, uh, the struggle for the possession of the mm. great bull at Cooley. Um, just maybe a, a note on the cattle, uh, and the, the role of cattle. I mean, cattle are absolutely central to, to Irish Gaelic Irish society, absolutely central. Um, and I remember seeing one of uh, one of the kind of breed of cattle that they had back there it was in the heritage park in Connemara. Beautiful, much smaller cow, white and white and red. Um, but cattle were absolutely essential because Ireland is uh, a pastoral country, has great grasslands, but cattle are, are absolutely uh, front and center of everything that Gaelic societies organize around economically, but also socially. You know, every uh, every free man had what was called an honor price. That was, you know, um, their status in society. The honor price was measured in cattle. So if you insulted or injured somebody, you had to pay them back depending on their honor price. Um, a female slave, I think, was worth 20 cattle. Everything is to do with cattle. Um, and the cattle rate of Cooley is the, the, the most celebrated, but throughout all of the regnal wars in Gaelic society, it's all about cattle rating. About and, and cattle as tribute. Uh, you don't forget, cattle provide the dairy. Gaelic society, uh, uh, one of the main staples is, is dairy products. We know they made cheese, they made a form of honeyed yogurt. Obviously, milk is really important, but then you've got the leather from the cow, you have the horns are used for various uh, drinking instruments and so on. Uh, tallow provides light. Obviously, you've got the beef. Um, but yeah, it's all of it, it really is centered on the cattle. And of course, cattle remain the mainstay of the Irish economy uh, for centuries afterwards. I mean, right through, um, through to the modern era, you know, and uh, the possession of cattle beyond their economic worth is still really important to Irish farmers. I mean, Irish, when you go today to Ireland, I mean, a farmer will more or less be, be, be ranked according to many cattle he has. You know, it's still, we still have this, idea about cattle being absolutely central to what it is and what we do. You look at board be a marketing Irish beef, it's about our beef is better than anybody else's. We have happy cows. I mean, that's literally part of their advertising. So if you want to say about, you know, ancient Ireland, all the remains of it, absolutely the cows, you know, central, really central. I mean, uh, even in the, the, the 1600s after the restoration, you know, cattle is what gets the economy moving again. So much so that, that, that uh, British farmers uh, compelled the British Parliament to pass cattle acts banning the importation of steer cattle into, or store cattle, rather, I should say, in, into Britain, you know. But cattle are absolutely, they're completely central to, you cannot understand Gaelic, ancient Gaelic society without understanding the role of cattle. Uh, and they're a mainstay again of, 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 of the Irish economy for, for, for centuries. But interesting as well, land and cattle are the two ways that the, are these different societies measured wealth. For the English, the Normans, the Tudors, wealth is land. That's how, that's how you measure your wealth. For the native Irish, wealth is cattle, you know? Very interesting. Just 
now that we're on the Cooley, um, we'll just we'll slide over to South Armagh because I know that you've been blogging lately uh, about Irish place names and yeah. uh, Sleeve Gullion is one of them. And ironically, I mean, it, uh, it's still there and it's in the, the border areas from partition in 1921. I mean, um, where does that name come from? Put you on yeah. the spot. I mean, I think place names are fascinating because again, if you look at ancient Ireland, all the remains of it, place names are all part of ancient Gaelic Ireland. I mean, they're, 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 they're usually physical descriptions. They sometimes have names. But when you investigate Irish place names, you really are delving into our history and language. And that's why it's really fascinating. So I have started blogging on some of this. And Schlieve Gullion was really interesting because Schlieve Gullion is the gap of the north. And literally, when you drive to Northern Ireland, you can see the gap in the mountains. That's where you drive through to the north. And of course, it's a contested border area. South Armagh famously, uh, during, the, during the, the conflict in Northern Ireland was the redoubt of the provisional IRA, but it was always that. It was always uh, a tough frontier area. You know, you had the O'Neills of the Fuse uh, engaged in a long, bitter frontier war with the Elizabethans where south of that border, wealth was land and north of it was cattle again, up until Tudor times. Um, you have the great uh, kind of Robin Hood of Ireland, Redmond or Hamlet, from that area, you know, this aristocratic kind of robber baron who eventually gets betrayed and killed, fascinating character. So when I began to look into just take sleeve gullion, it turns out we're not quite sure what it means, even though it's absolutely central to the time. This is where the time happens. We don't know what it means. I, I mean, it could mean Cullen's Hill. Schlieve is easy. Schlieve is a hillside, a mountainside. It could mean Cullen's Hill, which is, Cullen was the great uh, mythological uh, smithy. His forge was supposed to be on Sleeve Gullion. And it's Cucullin who kills his watchdog um, and therefore has to become his hound. That's how Cucullin gets his name. He's the, the hound of Cullin. So it could be Cullin's Mountain. It could be, there's, there's two words, Cullin, Quillan, which are, could mean a sharp slope or a holly bush. But just unraveling that mystery is fascinating because every place in Amon Ireland, you can unpick it with certain key words and figure out what the history is and how people are responsive to that landscape. So for anybody interested in Ireland or even just thinking about traveling to Ireland after COVID, think about your place names, you know, because it, it really is a fascinating study and there are some good books out there on, on how to decode the place names, you know, yeah. And South Armagh, well, my, my grandparents came, my grandfather uh, on my father's side came from South Armagh, so I can have a bit of a, an affinity for that area. So that, you know, and of course, it's such a great area, but I think it was undeveloped as a tourist area because of 30 years of conflict. I mean, that's where the border was, you know, that's where the, the, the South Armagh IRA was, you know, but there's great, there's a great, the, the Ring of Gullion is a fantastic uh, website for people who are interested in that area, you know. Now the uh, the audience knows that my questions are rigged because now we're, we're, we're fading into Irish tourism. Yeah. <laughs> So I mean, well, I have to give the well. You you were shameless in plugging, so I have to plug. Yeah. <laughs> I, have to, I have to plug Ireland when I get the chance. Yes. Well, I'm going to give you another chance to do it uh, because uh, our 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 time is 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 drawing. But I, it's it, you know, one of the famous things about Ireland is is uh, is the whiskey and the beer, and uh, they have a, a fairly long lineage. And I'm sure that you might have something to say about that. I just, I just very briefly, it was quite funny because one of the things I came across was the, uh, where the monks, the early Irish Christian monks, when they went to Europe, as they did on their missions to basically save Western civilization, 
one of the constant complaints from the monks was how bad the beer was in, 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 in France and Western Europe, generally speaking. So we know from that that the Irish beer was, was, was very, was obviously very, was good quality stuff and, and remains to this day. I mean, it was so, uh, it was regarded as so good that actually the British banned the importation of hops into Ireland um, uh, to suppress the, the production of beer. And that ban was only lifted uh, in by uh, 17... Uh, the 1780s uh, and that that allowed then obviously Arthur Guinness to, to develop his empire from 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 sorry from this what did I say did I say 18 uh, 17 from the 1780s and then of course Arthur Guinness comes along but the hop they had a ban on the importation of hops so yeah Irish beer again one of the things from from ancient Ireland whiskey is, is much more recent I mean I, I came across one theory that the monks brought back the distillation of perfume to Ireland which allowed them to develop um distillation of alcohol um, and so uh, it was always very popular in Ireland from about the 12th century onwards but it wasn't the whiskey we would know it was a clear whiskey more like the putching that was kind of illicitly brewed as well so yeah whiskey uh, whiskey was uh, was a huge industry in Ireland and then it faded I mean there was something like 34 brewer, uh, distilleries in Ireland up until the 1890s and then it faded um, and and the, the the Scottish whiskey industry now didn't at this period and I remember talking to my grandfather and he said, oh, he says, the reason for that was that the Irish distillers got greedy during the First World War and released whiskey before it was matured and the Scottish didn't. And so Scotch then became the emblem of really, really good whiskey, you know, uh, and I don't know if that story is true or not, uh, but it, it came from my grandfather. So uh, who am I to who am I to say no? But it's really interesting um, that. Uh, whiskey distilling in Ireland, having gone down to essentially one company in the 1970s, Irish distillers, is now blossoming. I mean, there's, 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 uh, it's, it's growing at a ferocious rate uh, into a billion euro industry. Uh, hasn't caught up with, with Scottish whiskey, but there's a huge renaissance in, in, in Irish whiskey uh, at the moment, you know, which is, which is great to see. You know, somebody said, thank you, you've turned my, 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 my problem into a hobby. Tasting all the different brands of Irish whiskey, yeah. Uh, we're particularly grateful because our our, our ICUF uh, Irish language scholar uh, this year, Apashi, and uh, in in the COVID times when we needed some good social time at St Michael's, arranged uh, a virtual whiskey tasting with some of his uh, his chums at uh, at Jameson's, and it was enjoyed by all. I, I can assure you that even in in, in, in a virtual surrounding. Yeah. I'd, before I, I ask the last question, which is one that I, I, I it's, it's going to be a tough one to ask, but um, we have the chat open. And right. for those of you who want to ask Eamon a question, um, put it in the chat and uh, that will keep this in an orderly fashion. There's no Brehon law about the chat except McGowan's law. And that is, if you want to ask a question, we'll put it in the chat and, uh, and uh, we'll dutifully uh, 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 address it, uh, knowing too that this session is being recorded uh, because uh, we want a, a permanent record or at least as permanent as possible on, uh, on Zoom to, to mount on our website at St. Michael's so that uh, those who couldn't attend tonight uh, may, may get a sense of this conversation uh, that we've had about Gaelic Ireland. So the last question that I want to ask is, is a tough one for me, uh, but uh, it, we've talked about uh, the decentralized Ireland 
and, and the waves and waves of attacks and conquests that have taken place. The Vikings, you mentioned the Normans, the Tudors, uh, the, the Cromwellian invasions, and, and we, we need not be reminded of, of Drogheda and other places like that mm -hmm. during that time. Um, the restoration of, of, of the British crown, which had enormous impl implications for Ireland as well. Um, the wars of independence, which, which you've also mentioned. I mean, it's ironic that the, the one centralized authority in 800 years in, in, in Ireland was one that was uh, imposed uh, by the British. Um, perhaps you might have some comment on, on when centralized authority does come. Um, what are we to make of that? Yeah, I personally think it's, it's a really interesting question because, you know, the culture and capacity for government, I think, is absolutely essential to any society. And um, very Irish historians have not, generally speaking, paid much attention to the abolition of the Irish Parliament in 1800. Um, so this is a really, really important because throughout that tumultuous period, there was always a parliament that was suspended here and there. But, but basically from the end of the 13th century, you have a council of essentially Norman lords that becomes the parliament. And by the mid 18th century, uh, by, by the 1700s, you have a house of commons, you have a house of lords, it is the beating heart of Dublin, uh, the wars are over, there's economic prosperity. Now, the members of the parliament are all Protestant. This is the Protestant descendancy that has essentially won Ireland after the wars of, of conquest and, and particularly the wars of religion in the 17th century. But Ireland is beginning to get on its feet and uh, the Protestant nation is kind of discovering itself in a way. Um, and throughout this period, even from the, from the Norman period onwards, you know, Ireland was a separate kingdom. And whoever was running it, whether they were Normans or New English or the Anglo-Irish ascendancy, always struggled to defend Ireland's interest against London. So they would look for economic concessions. Um, they would look to promote uh, their particular interests. Now, they're ignoring the, the bulk of the population, but they are a voice for the interests of the economy. Um, and they constantly, they fight against the Cadillacs that I mentioned earlier, you know, in Grattan's Parliament, they're asserting themselves. And around this Parliament in Dublin, you have everything that goes with a parliament. You have advisors and civil servants, you have bankers, you have wealth, you've got ideas about reforming things. Um, and you've got a vibrancy around this central institution in Ireland um, up until 1800. And then it's suddenly abolished. And when the parliament is abolished, it meant that all of the, the lords and the House, members of the House of Commons, they all have to go to London because that's where they're now represented. So all their advisors go, the bankers drift off, that kind of secular power is gone. Uh, Dublin declines uh, and ceases to grow after 1800 because the money is left. Um, the great Georgian houses that were there to house the aristocracy when parliament in session, they become tenements. They're rented out as tenements. Uh, the estates uh, begin to decline into rent farms, just rent farms, which sets the scene for the great Irish famine. So my own view is that I think the, the, the abolition of parliament uh, uh, even though it was, yes, yes, it was a, pro a Protestant parliament, it does enormous damage to the culture of, of governance in Ireland. And what you have after 1800, it's ruled directly by the office of, of the, the Viceroy, but more particularly the Chief Secretary. And so they're running Ireland from 1800 onwards. But in a weird kind of way, 
they're running Ireland, but they don't want to change Ireland or modernize it, more or less in deference to the fact that there isn't a native government. You know, they'll check with the Irish parliamentary party, is this okay? So Ireland suffers not just direct rule, but more or less direct neglect for much of, of the 19th century. So by the time you have independence in 1922, when the Irish government takes over, or the Irish people take over, there's not actually much government there. You know, you have this, uh, you know, it, it, they're just, there's nothing really to take over. You've got departments that are inherited for, from the colonial period. Uh, and we have to begin to construct a way of governing ourselves in the absence of that. And it's funny, it's not a subject that's often talked about, you know, we don't often reflect on colonialism. I don't mean in any kind of way of, oh, let's see, let's complain about the past. I just mean in terms of what were the legacies. So for example, I don't think it's possible to understand the, the difficulties we have in our, in our health service with the multiple owners, you know, the church, the consultants, the private hospitals, the public hospitals. You can't understand that without understanding the roots of this structure we inherited, which is essentially colonial. The role of the church, for example, in the health services and in education, you know. So it's not a kind of a bitter look back. It's just a very cold eyed look at well, what did we inherit in terms of the mechanisms of governance, you know, um, and the better effectively to, 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 to look to our, our future in many ways. Um, but there is a great there is a sense which is, I think, the positive side. And this is one of the positive sides of what we take forward from ancient Gaelic Ireland. And don't forget, ancient Gaelic Ireland survived up until the Great Famine. There were many parts of ancient Gaelic Irish society that continue made while, the, while, while you know, it was broken down in many ways by the flight of the Earls in, in 1607 and so on. An awful lot of Gaelic Irish culture, mores, the language, the music survived. I think one of the things that you could say, which has been a great benefit to us, is that Ireland is a very consensual society. To move things and to change things, you have to get the consent of your different partners. And in a way, that's a very positive thing. You know, it can slow you down a bit, but ultimately, ultimately it means that people have confidence in the way that they're run because everybody is a stakeholder, you know? And, and I think you get that sense from, from Gaelic society, ancient Gaelic society as well. It, it's, it's very cohesive. They're talking within very common frameworks of law, uh, genealogy, history, literature. There is a sense, whether you call it nationalism or not, there is a sense of them speaking within a very defined, uh, um, familiar language and precepts about how the world is organized, you know? Um, I mean, before we close, I did, I did want to draw attention to one thing which is really important, which is the Irish monastic tradition, because if you, if you look at ancient Gaelic Ireland and what survives, the monasteries and are, are clearly very, very visible, very, very beautiful. But uh, the monasteries and, and, and the Christian, it's really interesting that Christianity, uh, once it's introduced by St. Patrick, becomes almost seamlessly integrated into, uh, there's some photographs I took in Tom McNoy's, almost seamlessly integrated into Gaelic society. And it's quite interesting that the early Christian Ireland, the monks of early Christian Ireland, develop a form of Christianity, which is very specifically Irish and based around the monasteries. Like I say, this is Clamac Noise here. You see the Round Tower, which was a defensive development against Viking raids. But since Gaelic society was not interested in urban centers, the monasteries become effectively urban centers. That's where you have your, your crafts, your, your furniture making, your brewing, 
and of course your books. And in those days, uh, like the Book of Kells, the Book of Kells would have been in a satchel hanging on a wall. They didn't have books on shelves. They literally had a wall lined with satchels and have their books there. Um, so the monasteries become the real kind of nodes of, 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 of advanced civilization for want of a better term. They're translating the great books um, from, from the East, from, from, from Greece, uh, Byzantine. They're translating the great works of Neoplatonism and they're bringing that back to Europe. So, but it's really interesting to see that the early Christian, like the, the, the Christian system is integrated in, into, into uh, Gaelic society. I know there's one question there about the Druids. This is really interesting because the monks are writing down all of this oral tradition. The one thing the monks don't write down is anything to do with the Druids. They literally, because they're obviously the competitors in the spiritual realm, the monks simply just ignore the Druids altogether. So we know very little about Druids in ancient Gaelic Irish society. We only know about them indirectly from Caesar's account of the role of the Druids in Gaul, for example. But the monks decide, well, we're not going to write about the Druids because we're taking over from them. So they kind of fade out of picture. Uh, but it's interesting that, that uh, Irish monasticism becomes a really key part of Gaelic society uh, and its power struggles um, uh, once they're established from the fifth century onwards. And of course, the monasteries are the reason why the Vikings raid. The, the, the Vikings are after the wealth in the monastery, you know. Fascinating. And uh, you've picked up one of the questions in the chat. And just to sort of uh, another shameless plug for St. Michael's, we actually do have an MA thesis in the Kelly Library written by Teresa O'Neill as she wrote it at UCD on the last Irish Parliament. And it's part oh, of excellent. Uh, Yes, it's it's part of the Patrick O'Neill collection. He was one of the uh, first Dashalist uh, MPs uh, for Stormont in the 1920s. And uh, right. we have his papers, but his daughter actually wrote on that parliament. So whenever you're in Toronto, Eamon, um, I will personally take you to the Kelly and we'll, and we'll take I'd a look at that, it. Look at that because, thesis. Because don't forget as well, the, the I think the foundation stone for the Irish parliament was laid in 1726 or so. But the Irish parliament at College Green was the first purpose-built bicameral parliament in Europe. I mean, it was a, an amazing building. And when uh, when they brought, when the British bribed the Irish parliament to vote itself out of existence, um, and it would only have happened against the threat of a Napoleonic invasion in the French Revolution, when they did that, they literally tore up all the benches out of the building to make sure it could never be used again and handed it over to the Bank of Ireland, you know? So um, yeah, it's it, it certainly, uh, I don't want to get too, uh, well, let me say, the idea that empire spreads democracy in, in Ireland uh, uh, wasn't the case, you know. We have a question in the chat from Ryan Hennessy. Uh, he's one of our students at St. Mike's. He says, can one consider Rome coming to Ireland indirectly through the introduction of Christianity? Oh, yeah, I think that's a very fair point. I mean, uh, Christianity and the monks um, are the survival of the Roman Empire. Um, when you have the Carolingian Renaissance under Charlemagne, for example, uh, these are warrior kings, often illiterate, um, but the bureaucracy of the Carolingian kingdoms is provided by churchmen. Churchmen are the only ones who can read and write. They use Latin, that therefore Latin becomes the, the language of government. Um, and absolutely, the, the Christian church is in Western Europe uh, there's in many ways the survival of the Roman Empire. 
So I think you're absolutely right. I think where where it it differs is that when St. Patrick comes in, uh, you know, he's a pretty tough he's a pretty tough character. His Latin isn't great. We know his vocabulary wasn't particularly sophisticated. He travels around Ireland with an entourage of Irish nobles, and and that's part of the key uh, to the success of his mission. But when St. Patrick comes in, he envisages uh, a diocesan structure, which is very much what Rome wanted. But that's not what happens. Uh, What happens is that uh, the Christian uh, presence in Ireland adapts to Irish society uh, and adapts uh, a monastic uh, structure, uh, asceticism. The famous ascetic monks is a very strong tradition in Ireland. That's why St. Brendan headed off in the, in the boat across the Atlantic and may, got, may have got to Canada. That's why the monks went to the Skellies. Asceticism is, is a great tradition. Um, and the monasteries become the nub. So in a way, you have two systems in Ireland. You have uh, a monastic system and you've got a very limited uh, diocesan system where very often the bishops are actually abbots of in the local monasteries. So the answer is yes. Clearly, Christianity is is a reflection of of Rome, but it's adapted to Irish circumstances. And there's a eventual a slow revolution where the monasteries eventually fade away. And of course, Henry VIII uh, abolishes them and takes their wealth eventually. But you do end up with a diocesan system uh, headed by bishops in the Roman model, uh, eventually established in Ireland. But yes, I think ultimately the answer is yes, but adapted to local Gaelic society. And of course. The, uh, the leadership, the abbots are often inherited roles uh, and they're often members of the, of the local Gaelic aristocracy. And this becomes one of the indictments of the church in Ireland uh, by Rome that they're involved in simony and passing on and having concubines and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's a question from Pat Marshall here, uh, Eamon. It's, uh, can you say a few words about women under the Brehon law? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a general view that women were accorded more power. Um, and I think that's true in one sense that divorce was possible in Gaelic Ireland. Um, and it could be by mutual consent. Um, and so women were not kind of locked into a relationship. Um, and they brought wealth and property with them into the marriage, which gave them a more co-equal status. Um, and in fact, one of the triggers for the time is that when Maeve and Aliel are discussing their respective wealth and Maeve wants to go and get the great, the, the brown bowl of coolie, it's because whoever brought more wealth in is the dominant partner in their marriage, you know? Um, but again, I, I think there are limits to how much you could, you, you can extol the virtues of Gaelic Ireland uh, on behalf of women. I, I, I'm sure it was, it was no picnic being, being a woman in Gaelic Ireland more than it was in, in, in other societies at the time. But notionally in the law, yes, they, they have more status. And we are talking about as aristocratic women, you know. And, of course, and we should also say, of course, that Gaelic society, uh, certainly at the time of the Vikings and up until the time of the Normans, is a slave-owning society, which is something we don't often talk about. Thanks for that. Uh, Ronald Gillis has a question, Eamon. It says, uh, when did currency replace cattle as a recognized form of wealth? Yeah, currency was always problematic because, um, and the revival of the Irish economy in the 17th century after the wars of religion was highly problematic because Irish currency was never regarded as as kind of good currency um, because it was always debased and so on. So there was a long struggle to get currency uh, kind of uh, accepted in in the Irish economy. Uh, But certainly you're looking at the modern era after the wars of, of, after the tumult of the 1600s, uh, currency is clearly 
you know, how, how transactions are, are done. That's not to say that bartering didn't continue. And I suspect that bartering continued in, in the informal peasant uh, economy uh, up until the famine, you know. But after the famine, of course, uh, the kind of landless peasant is wiped out by disease, by immigration, and the strong farming class come in. And, and there you are definitely in the second half of the 19th century, you were in a money economy. Thank you. Um, MK Brennan asks, and we're shifting gears again here, can you speak a little bit about the emergence and growth of Irish music and dance? Uh, no, 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 probably not, actually. It wouldn't be my expertise, no. But about what I would say is that music was an absolutely critical dimension to courtly life in, with, the, with the Gaelic aristocracy. Um, if you're a Gaelic, uh, if you're an Irish, Ga if you're a king in ancient Gaelic society, you have a pretty extensive court with you. You know, you not only do you have your Brehon, uh, who's often an inherited role, you have your, so you have your legal advisor, you have your, you, you, you have your master of your dogs and of your horses, you've got your warrior bodyguard. Very often the bodyguard are gallow glasses, which are mercenary soldiers from Scotland. But you've also got your, your genealogist, you've got your jester, tumbler, but you also have your musicians. Um, and having music at the court is absolutely critical. Uh, the harp obviously has ancient lineage, uh, but music is always a key part of life in ancient Gaelic society. And no lord or aristocrat would have would be without his without his musician. And of course, you have musicians and poets who moved around Gaelic Ireland uh, and performed and, and lived on that basis. But musicians and poets were were very highly regarded, had great social rank. In, in, in Gaelic Irish society. And, and famously, of course, the poets uh, were deeply feared because if you treated them badly, they'd write a poem uh, uh, insulting you, which would live forever. And so they, they had great power and musicians were, were very, very, uh, were very, were accorded a great status. So when, after the flight of the Euros in 1607, the aristocratic courts of the Gaelic Irish are kind of dissolved, you end up with the musicians being effectively wandering musicians around the country. And that, that becomes a feature, uh, you know, like Carolyn, the great, the great blind uh, Irish, Irish musician um, and uh, harpist. Um, you know, even when you have people like um, William Johnson, who, who goes to upstate New York in, 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 in the late 18th century and, and establishes himself there as a trader and a very wealthy man and a, and a soldier uh, allied to the, uh, the Iroquois, for example, he sets up effectively a Gaelic court with, and he, he's, he's, he's sending begging letters home to musicians and harpists to come to his court. So music is absolutely core to, 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 to Gaelic, ancient Gaelic Irish society as it is today. Thanks. Now, Seamus McClare asked two questions, but in the interest of time, I'm only going to, to, to pose one of them. Um, and he asks, uh, did the Brehan legal system include any sort of welfare protections? So were clan members who were wealthy legally bound to assist clan members in want uh, for the welfare of the entire clan? Yeah, I think, I, uh, I'm not sure, I don't think there were obligations under Brehan law, but there would have been familial and social obligations. And so, yes, you would have, you would have looked after your, your kith and kin. And don't forget, it wasn't a nuclear, you know, there wasn't a nuclear family in the way that we have a mother and father and children. A family in ancient Gaelic Ireland is a much wider concept. It's those related to a grandfather figure. So, and, and also fostering was, was very important where uh, to bind family loyalty, children would be fostered out to, to other families. So fosterage was a huge part of Gaelic Irish society 
and foster brothers often felt the bond between them was much stronger than the bond between blood brothers. I mean, even Daniel O'Connell uh, down in Kerry, he's fostered out to a local Gaelic speaking Irish family up until he's, I think, seven or eight. And when he's brought back to his family home, these wealthy Catholics, he disappears before dinner and they find him wandering back to his to his original foster family, you know. So that's where Daniel O'Connell got in Irish. He was fostered. So it, fosterage was big. But yeah, even, you know, um, people who wandered into Atua who were from somewhere else, who were expelled for whatever reasons, for crime or not paying debt, very often there a place would be made for them in that society, but it would be, uh, you know, as a serf, as a as a as a bonded serf uh, with very few legal rights, you know. And again, under Breton law, legal rights really did the depth of your legal right or, or the extent of your legal rights depended on your rank in society. So, for example, uh, a bonded tenant couldn't have couldn't couldn't his testimony would not be taken against a king's testimony. A king's testimony could never be contradicted. Um, but yeah, I think welfare is actually a familial obligation rather than rather than a legal one. We have two more questions. Uh, the first is from John Books, and he says, where do the descendants of the Milesians fit into your Irish timeline? Well, this is a really interesting question because the, the sons of, 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 of the Milesians, as it were, the sons of King Mill and all of that, may well be an invention by Irish historians in the Middle Ages to create a kind of uniformity around the lineage. Um, and so the Irish always regarded themselves as being, you know, descended from essentially these Iberian nobles, you know, the Milesians or even the Phoenicians. Um, and the medieval Irish historians never refer to the Celts. They just don't see them as being part of the origin story of the Irish. The origin stories are all invented, really, after the arrival of the Christian monks and the beginning of recorded Irish history. Um, it's only in the 19th century that... Uh, we waken up to the idea that we're Celtic, you know, again, part of that wider European romantic nationalist movement, you know, so you never find the, the like Geoffrey Keating and, and, and historians like that talking about the Irish being Celts at all, you know, um, they, they have this other story that were descended from, from the Milesians. So in a way, uh, one of the great, um, one of the great scholars, of early Irish historian mythology, um, Thomas, uh, Thomas F. O'Rahilly, uh, who's mid 20th century uh, author. He wrote this famous book, and I have a copy of it there, famous book, um, you can't really see it there, but he wrote this book and it's very dense and all of that, um, published by, uh, published by the, the, the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies, which focuses on the origins of, of the Celts. Uh, he makes that point too, that, that there's a deliberate construction of identity uh, by the early Irish historians. And, and you know, the, uh, the, the analysts, for example, create these lists of kings. So when Thomas, uh, Thomas F. O'Reilly looks at early Irish history, he completely dismisses all of the medieval Irish historians and their stories. He just says, you can't rely on that at all. That's just an invention. And, and very often family lineage is invented by leading Irish families like the O'Neill's to create legitimacy for themselves in their power struggles for dominance within Ireland, you know? So yeah, that's probably part of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a fabrication, probably too strong a word for it, but not too strong actually. 
Thank you. And now the last question, um, and it's from Catherine Lochnan, and she asks, uh, how was the oath of allegiance or, or supremacy administered? Oh, well, oath, uh, yeah, well, I mean, you're in a very tricky area here. Um, and um, I mean, listen, in, in, uh, in, for, for English people, all oaths were administered basically on the Bible. You would swear in front of a, a senior official your, your loyalty to, to a monarch. Very often, I think, in, uh, even in Elizabethan times, um, by you know, your fealty to a king, was established by putting your hands together in the, in, within the hands of the king, for example. But when you're talking about, you know, the 16th, 17th century, you're talking about swearing mighty oaths and so on to, to, the, to the various acts. Uh, in Ireland, in, in ancient Gaelic Ireland, actually, uh, they used relics uh, to, uh, to confirm oaths. So if you were swearing an oath to your king or an oath uh, in an alliance or for a peace treaty or whatever, um, the local bishop would come along in all his finery, with all his retinue, and he would bring um, the relic of a saint uh, to the oath taking to, to confirm the oath, as it were, because, of course, a relic uh, is regarded as a direct connection to the saint up in heaven, and that's a transmission of grace. So the, Ga the Gaelic Irish would certainly use relics for, uh, for oath taking, or the English would use the Bible, you know, um, and, of course, the English Protestants, by by the time by by the seventeenth century, the New English, the Tudors would regard relics as just superstitious uh, nonsense uh, and so on. So yeah, again, there's a cultural, there's a there's a deep cultural difference there, you know. And of course, the nature of the oath uh, of supremacy, for example, that's a really difficult one for uh, the the Catholic Irish. Now, the Catholic Irish are def divided in two. There's the Catholic peasant Irish, as it were, Gaelic Irish. But then there's the Catholics who are the descendants of the Normans, and they become known as the Old English, and they stay Catholic throughout the wars of conquest and the wars of religion. They become known as the Recusants, uh, and ultimately they do lose out. I mean, before the wars of religion in the 1700s, they own about three-fifths of Ireland. Afterwards, they only own one-fifth. There's a massive transfer of land ownership uh, in the 1600s, thanks to the wars of religion and the conquests of, of, of the New English and, and the Tudors in the restoration and that's what the anglo-irish ascendancy bases their wealth on uh, thereafter you know well thank you very much uh Eamon. i mean normally uh, had we been in non-pandemic times we would conclude now and there would be a scrum of uh, of uh, of the of the listeners among you and then the celtic studies folk would usher you out to a nice dinner uh with 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 friends and convivial conversation and and maybe some of that whiskey well, you owe me that then yeah <laughs> so we owe you that uh for sure but we owe you a great debt of of, of gratitude for meeting with us this evening and i've looked through we had over a hundred people on this call tonight right. and faculty members from saint michael's students uh, even asking questions members long-standing supporters of celtic studies in the irish community um and and some of our leaders in the irish community here and, and that really is a testament to the ties between i think our college and our city and 
our community uh, with Ireland and particularly with both you and the people who have occupied your office before you. I mean, it, uh, it's been a, a strong bond and you've made it, I think, even stronger tonight. And I'd like to thank the Irish Cultural Society of Toronto for all of their support over the years as well, the Ireland Fund of Canada. Um, they make these events and Celtic studies possible and uh, absolutely delighted tonight that you could join us. And yes, you will have to take us up on that dinner when social distancing has ended Ended when we are vaccinated and uh, and we can all move forward with the, those things uh, that we love to do socially because we are social beings and uh, uh, but I thank you for being with us even in this rather less than natural surrounding tonight and thank yeah. members of the audience. Uh, listen uh, thank you for for your efforts and 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 the way that you disseminate Irish history and and culture and particularly with the focus on on Celtic studies and so on it's always just great to see people interested in this and and uh, and history is so fascinating because of the connections that you make and and I know all your students will learn a huge amount about not just Irish history but about life through through the, the mentorship and the training that you do it's great to have that program there delighted I'm really looking forward to go down and actually being with you having that dinner but also having those uh, having those discussions and, and continuing these and any time you 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 have a topic or something that we might be able to shed some light on. Please be delighted to do it again. And just uh, thanks again. Thank you, Amy. Now you have a hundred witnesses knowing that you're coming <laughs> back. So that's uh, thank you so much, and thanks for everyone. I'd also like to thank my assistant Adrian Ross, and he's he's been a stalwart uh, both on the Beacon lectures and for Celtic studies here. Um, he's been monitoring the chat. He's been putting up the slides. He's been making sure that the 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 electronics work well. Uh, thanks so very much. There he is. He's he's just appeared on screen. Thanks, Adrian. Um, Great job. He's my right Thank and my you. left hand in the principal's office. Thanks, Adrian. Yeah, great. And have a good evening. Be safe, be healthy, and until we meet again. Yo, good uh, night now. <laughs>